1 Samuel chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 13. Before I get started this morning, I want to say that I'm so grateful for all that God is doing, all that God has done. You know, if God never did anything else for us, what He's done today is enough and it merits serving Him the rest of our lives until we either died or He came back and took us home either way. And I'm so grateful for all that God has done. I'm grateful that I'm part of a church where I can look out and see lives that have been changed by God. I can look out and point to people and say, you know what, if you want to see an example of what God can do in somebody's life, look at this person, look at this person, look at this person, look what God did in this marriage, look what God has did in this man, look what God has did in this woman. And I'm blessed to be part of a church that there's no shortage of people I can point to and say, God has did great things. I enjoy um, God's call on my life. I enjoy being a pastor. At times it's fun. At times it's hard. And this morning was one of the mornings that as I prepared for my sermon, I just didn't even want to come. I almost texted Branson just to tell him, not to ask him to preach, I just so he'd pray for me and know where I was at. But I almost texted him and said, I don't even feel like coming to church this morning. You know, parenting is hard business. The best way I can try to explain to you where I stand as your pastor sometimes, it's like when you have a kid that you love greatly, and they just blow it, and you know it. And you as a parent have to say something. You have to do something. You can't just let it go unchecked. You can't just let it continue. And trying to figure out how you address it. What do I say? How do I communicate in a strong way that that what is right and what is wrong, while at the same time continuing to let my children know I love them. That's not an easy thing to do. I can't think of one single conversation like that I've ever faced with my kids that I was excited about. That I was just, I couldn't wait to have this conversation. It's the type of thing you almost want to put off and just hope it fixes itself. But you know there comes a time as the one that God has put in in a responsible position over your children that you've got to sometimes say the hard thing. Sometimes that happens when you're pastoring. And I'm like you. I like to be liked. I like to be the one that makes you feel good, the one that encourages you, the one that, you know, that you think, man, I feel strong and I feel good when I'm around this guy. Sometimes God asks us to deal with hard things. I want to say this morning there is nothing specific You know, I reference when your child has done something wrong. I'm not saying the church has done something wrong or that anybody here has. I was just trying to somehow help you get a feeling for what's going on inside of me this morning as I bring you the Word that I believe God has asked me to preach. It's a topic that we really don't want to talk about much in the church. If we do, we want to talk about it very little and then spend a long time talking about grace. I want to talk, the title of my sermon is as simple as the title you'll ever hear. It's called The Truth About Sin. I just want to preach about sin this morning, that's all. This morning I've chosen for our text to start 1 Samuel chapter 3, verses 13. And then we're going to go to chapter 4, verses 19 and 20. We're actually going to read through 21. So let's look together at 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 13. 
Now, when it says, for I, that is God speaking about what he has proclaimed concerning Eli and his household. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever. For the iniquity he knows, because his sons made themselves vile, and he did not restrain them. Now look at chapter 4 and verse 19. Speaking also of Eli. Now his daughter-in-law, Phinehas' wife, was with child, due to be delivered. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and gave birth. For her labor pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women stood by her, said to her, Do not fear, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer, nor did she regard it. Then she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. Let us pray. Father, I ask this morning that you would continue what you've started here. Lord, I have felt you working in my heart. I have felt a real spirit of worship here this morning. God, we know that you are active and alive. And we ask this morning that you would anoint me to preach your word in the power, in the demonstration, in the authority of heaven. God, I pray that I would say nothing that you would have me not to say. God, I ask that you would guard my lips. Lord, I pray that I would not be a man that preaches this morning out of my passion, out of my thoughts, but that, God, this morning I would yield my body to You, and, Lord, that You would be the one speaking to us through me. God, let Your Word come to life this morning in our hearts. May we be convicted of sin this morning and repent in the name of Jesus. God, we pray for every man, woman, boy, girl that is in this place that is not saved that they be saved today. God, we ask for the miracle of salvation this morning in this church. Have your way in our hearts. Have your way in this place. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God told Eli that because of the iniquity of his house, which he knows, because his sons made... Him, themselves vile, and he did not restrain them, God would punish them. Eli was a priest who had two sons that worked as priests that were as wicked as wicked could get. They would force women in order to supposedly, you know, ha- have them go through the ceremony of cleansing them and having the women be right in the sight of God. They would force these women to have sexual relationships with them. They were evil, wicked men. They were taking the best of all the offerings that were coming in and and living off of them instead of building up God's church. The church had become an absolute sham. It was despicable in the eyes of God. It was despicable in the eyes of the people. And what we find is that Eli knew about it. But you did not restrain your sons. 
is what God accused Eli of doing. So in essence, Eli, though Eli cannot be found doing the same wicked things his sons did, the very fact that he refused to speak out against it and that he refused to call it wrong and that he refused to discipline his sons, that he refused to restrain them was evidence he was just as guilty as they were for the wickedness that was going on in the church. We have a restraining problem in our culture. That's tough to preach on parenting. But I'm going to tell you that the main problem with our country is parenting. That's it. It's not politics. It's not necessarily the church. It's not, it, it, it's not that people don't have a fair shake at life. It's not where you start. It's not where you finish. The main problem, the biggest reason that our kids are messed up is because they are left to themselves. There is a general mentality that, oh, we'll just, you know, we just believe in letting them figure out their own right and wrong. The problem with that idiotic thinking is that God has already told us what is right and what is wrong. We don't need to wait to figure it out. He has told us what is right and what is wrong. It is our responsibility to know what is right and what is wrong. And it is our responsibility to teach our children what is right and what is wrong. And it is our responsibility to restrain them when they don't do what is right. And we're living in a culture where there is no restraint. We're living in a culture where discipline has been turned into child abuse. It's not even the sermon. I'm preaching about sin this morning. I think I'll just move on. In verse 19, God has already judged and did what He said He would do. Eli's sons are dead. Eli hears that the Ark of the Covenant has been captured by the enemies of God. He has a heart attack, falls off of his stool and dies. And now his daughter-in-law gives birth. The insinuation here is that all the trauma forced her into labor. We don't know. She was obviously close to being due. But the trauma forced her into labor. She ended up ultimately dying through the birth of this child. She named the child Ichabod, which means the glory has departed from Israel, for two reasons. One, because the ark had been captured, but two, because of her father-in-law and her husband. I think about Phineas' wife. I can't help but wonder how many of them are here this morning. She knew all too well the glory departed a long time ago. She knew all about her adulterating, false, hypocritical, evil husband who showed up at church with a tie on and tried to convince the whole world that he was a good guy. She knew. She lived with him day in and day out. She knew what was coming. Sin eventually catch up to you. You can trick me. You can trick the person to your left, the person to your right. 
But eventually sin will catch up to you. You cannot outrun it. You can only repent of it. And if you continue to run in the direction of sin and in hypocrisy, eventually the glory will depart. I'm a big believer that part of the reason we see the lack of God's glory, I mean His power, the Shekinah power of God that, that filled the presence of the, of the temple, that changed things when it showed up, that power of God, it is so absent from many of our churches. The glory has departed. There's a lot of songs. There's a lot of worship. There's a lot of preaching. There's a lot of things. There's a lot of activities. But the glory in most places has departed in this country because we've become a church of sinners. We're not ashamed of sin. And when we start to talk about sin... Hey, come on, you know, this is your culture. You've been here. You've done that. What's the response? We start to talk about sin and all of a sudden the walls go up of grace. Hmm? Who are you to judge me? Are you perfect? We all got sin problems, right? And so let's not talk about our sin. Let's not deal with our sin. Let's pretend that sin doesn't really matter much. Let's pretend that sin doesn't really corrupt. And let's just, under the false disguise of grace over here, continue in sin. It's such a stupid way of thinking because Paul himself addresses it as clear as you could ever address it. He says this, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? His answer, God forbid. His answer in the original that it was spoken literally means this. It means a thousand times no. That's what it means. But it would take me so long to say no, 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 a thousand times that I'm going to use this expression. That's how much Paul said, no, we do not continue in sin because God's grace is big. And yet, this is the general mentality of our culture. We are no longer horrified at sin. We are no longer nervous when sin starts to creep into our lives. We are comfortable with sin. We are fine with it. As long as it's not as bad as the people we really think have bad sin. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse... 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness, that's another word for sin, is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Here's what I want you to see about this passage today. I have a lot of Scripture for us this morning. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. The Bible teaches us that sin has a mysterious element about it. I want you to think about mystery. You ever played the game Clue? You ever got watched any type of you know mystery? They, they try, have a bunch of mystery-type driven shows today. Uh, many of them are like C... Uh, what's the... I don't watch TV. What, what's the name of the... I want to say CRI, but that's not it. CSI, yes. Okay. Somebody watches it. 
they're mystery driven, right? It's like you got this element and then you got this element. You're trying to put all these things to make sense of it. It's not incredibly simple. Sin has a mysterious element about it. Why would one man have sin take him into becoming a wicked and evil murderer while another man, his sin takes him into capitalist greed and, he, and he's willing to hurt people and harm people for his own wealth. Two totally different lifestyles. Two totally different people. One man's got, he's all tattooed up and he looks like a, like a murderer and the other man's got his white collar on and his tie on, but both of them are wrapped up in sin. It's a mysterious thing why sin would take one man here and another here. But the problem is that sin is ultimately ingrained in our DNA. We are born with it. And the mysterious thing about sin is that every one of us here are guilty of sin. Every one of us here have gone to different degrees of sin. Every one of us here struggle with different sins. But the one common factor we all have is sin is in us. Romans 3.23 tells us this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There we see again the glory of God connected to the idea of being free from sin. All have sinned. All. You need to know that this morning. That's you. You might be able to point to a bunch of people that that you haven't did what they did, and you weren't, you know, you're, at least you didn't join ISIS. But all have sinned. You, me, your husband, your wife, your children, all have sinned. There is none who have not. This thing that we call sin, that the Bible calls sin, is something that affects the whole world. It is a big deal. We need to know about it. We need to know how to fight it. All of the sorrow, all of the heartache, all of the pain, all of the shame, everything that is evil in this world, all of the hurt, all of the sickness can be traced to one simple three-letter word, sin. It is sin. Now I ask the question, where is the origin of sin? Where is the origin of sin? Where did it start with? The answer very simply is Satan. In the book of Ezekiel, and other places, we have the account of Satan. We have the idea of his, him being created. We know that he existed before um, man existed. And in Ezekiel chapter 28, we have, we have what many believe is the account of the fall of Satan. Now look what verse 15 says. You were perfect in your ways. This is speaking of Lucifer. From the day you were created till iniquity, that's another word for sin, was found in you. This is the place in the Bible that it tells us the very first time we see the origin of sin. Satan, just like you and I, had a free choice. Many people would ask, well, if he was created perfect, if he was created good, if he was created to worship God, then why did he sin? The answer is the same reason you do. That's why. Pride. The belief that he knew better than God. The belief that, yeah, God was good, but God didn't really know all there was to know, and that really, if, if 
Satan thought, I can become like God. That's really at the heart of what sin is. It's the idea that we can become our own God. We write our own rules. We decide what is morally right, what is morally wrong. We dictate what is right and what is wrong. And religious people are willing to accept that some of what God says is good. I'm not saying it's all bad. I'm not saying God's all bad. All I'm saying is it's a little over the top. And, you know, everybody does this. Come on, seriously. Come on. Everybody does this every now and then. And so we begin to excuse. We begin to lower the bar. We begin to become our own moral gods on what we believe is right and what is wrong. It originated with Satan. I want to say this morning that the devil and sin both have definite beginnings. There's a place that it started. And they both have definite ends. God will once and for all eradicate this world of sin, sickness, and death. There will come a time when time will be no more. If you are lost here this morning, your time will be up. And if you are not saved between this moment and that moment, you will spend forever in a literal hell. God will deal with sin. I want to talk to you about the seriousness of sin. You know, it would make sense for an unbelieving, rebellious world to mock at the idea of sin. It would make sense for the rest of these people in this world to push it off as if it's nothing. But the thing that blows my mind is how in the world did we get there in the church? We will make a name for everything except call it sin. It's behavior problems. It is moral differences. It's just my personality. It's an alternate lifestyle. God just takes it all and sums it up in one three-letter word, sin. And His command concerning it is simple. Repent. Turn from it. Acknowledge that it's evil and wicked and turn from it and follow God. What is sin? It is the transgression of the law. It is the breaking of God's law. Simply put, God has given us a standard by which we are to live. He is the one who determines what is right and what is wrong. Nowhere in the Bible does God make exceptions for sin based upon personality disorders, based upon alternate lifestyles, based upon moral differences. He calls it sin. It is sin. It must be repented of. And we must turn to Jesus Christ for faith in the forgiveness of our sins. We must look to the blood as a payment of our sins. But we must acknowledge that it is sin and it is what is destroying our nation. It is destroying our sons and daughters. It is destroying the church. If you are sinning this morning, it is destroying you. And we must see it for what it is. A deadly disease. A cancer to the human soul. And God hates sin. We must quit treating it as if it's nothing. Romans 14 tells us that unbelief is sin. James chapter 4 tells us that the failure to do good is sin. You think about all of the modern advances of our day and time. I mean, some of you right now are checking your fantasy football stats to see exactly where you're at. 
We can send emails around the world in seconds. Are planes large enough that every single person in this room, we can get on a plane together and fly to China. There are ships that can take us through the ocean faster and smoother than even the greatest sea creatures out there. We have advanced in so many ways, but not one single advancement and not all of them together, compiled together, have helped to solve the problem of sin in this world. It has not eradicated this world of the problems of sin. It has not helped this world with the problems of sin. There is only one way that sin can be dealt with, and it is through the cross. It is through Jesus Christ. The church has to get its message back. Sin is a dangerous, dangerous thing. Evangelist Douglas Wynn said this about sin. Sin drove man from Eden. Sin beguiled Eve and made the first man a victim of a sinning petticoat. Sin made of earth's first baby a murderer. Sin made Noah drunk and Lot stooped so low as to offer his own virgin daughters to the most filthy of all dirty men. Sin caused Abraham, the friend of God, to lie. And Moses, the meekest man on earth, to murder. Sin brought Aaron to worship a golden idol and Achan to steal. It was sin that stripped Samson of his heavyweight powers because of whorish women. Sin made an adulterer and murderer of David, the man after God's own heart. Sin made Samuel and Eli unworthy parents and their children to bite the dust of sin's deadly bite. Sin made the wisest mortal on earth a victim of lust. And sin made a crybaby out of the mighty Elijah. It was sin that caused Judas to sell the Prince of Glory for 30 pieces of silver. William Jennings Bryan, with all of his oratorical ability, could not adequately describe the terribleness of sin. The greatest of preachers have never been able to fully describe the real monster sin. Sin always demotes. It never elevates. And always leads downward. Sin makes husbands unfaithful, wives untrue, and will rob the virtue of the sweetest girl. Sin will send you to hell where forever you will scream, not for a glassful or a spoonful, but for one drop of water. That's how serious sin is. Do you see the sin in your own family as that serious? Do you see the sin in your own life as that serious? I want to talk to you about the symptoms of sin. It manifests itself in multitudes of ways. 
As I've already said, that might be why it is called mysterious. We saw earlier in Romans 3.23 that all men have the disease of the soul. You know, we could just look at the last 24 hours, just 24 hours, one day, the last 24 hours of Jesus' life and see many of the symptoms of sin. With the Pharisees, we see the symptom of pride. They didn't care what was true. They were so hungry to be thought of as great moral men that they were willing to destroy everything that exposed them. We see the sin of fear with Pilate. Pilate knew that Jesus wasn't guilty. He even tried to tell the crowd that. I've examined the man. I found nothing in him. But he was so afraid of the crowd. He was so afraid of losing his prestigious position if the crowd went into a riot and he was unable to squell it, that he was willing to kill an innocent man that he knew was innocent, thinking he could wash his hands of it and say, this is your fault. Fear is one of the symptoms of sin that will cause you to be disobedient to God. We see with Judas in that last hour, 24 hours of Jesus' life, greed willing to do what was wrong as long as he could gain from it. The crowd. Hard-heartedness. They sat by and watched an innocent man be condemned to death. They sat by and watched the, the, uh, the, the soldiers pluck the beard off of his face and nearly beat him to death. And even as he hung, the crowds came by and mocked. We see the symptom of mockery. The soldiers mocked Him worse than anybody else. Beating Him on the head, blindfolded, saying, Tell us who hit you. Casting lots for His garment. The man's dying. He's bleeding to death at their hands. They are the ones who drove the nails. They are the ones who crucified Him. They are the ones who hung Him up. And as He hangs there, bleeding and dying, they're playing poker. Sin is wicked. It's evil. And I think about the symptoms of sin in our day and time. They're not much different. They are not much different. The Bible says, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 56. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 56. The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. The strength of sin is the law. Here's what that means. The strength of sin is the law. Let's look at Romans 3.20. Go ahead and put that up too. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So the Bible teaches us that the purpose of the law is not to change us, but to let us know of sin. That is the purpose of it. The strength of sin, the power of sin, is known in the law. You see, it's real easy for somebody to set up their own laws, their own moral standards for right and wrong. But God's law has already been set. It has already been determined. It has already been decreed. 
It is unchanging. It has not changed. It isn't changing. And it will not change. His law is forever settled. Now, the law is not meant to save us, but it's meant to show us of our guilt and our need for salvation. But here's what we have to understand is that it is God who says what sin is. God is the one who says what sin is. We have to stop the nonsense of taking a general consensus on is it right or wrong. If God says it's sin, it's sin. It doesn't matter what the wave of popular opinion is, and it doesn't matter what the wave of the popular opinion of the church is. If the wave of popular opinion of the church is different than this, then the church is wrong. God has decreed once and for all, through the law, what is right and what is wrong. And we have to realize how bad sin is. We've got to quit justifying our own. The same disease of sin that caused the disciples to abandon Jesus is the same disease of sin that causes moms and dads to walk out and abandon their children. It's the same disease that causes husbands to walk out on their wives. Wives to walk out on their husbands. The same disease that causes men and women to rob and to steal and to thief is the same disease that causes many of you to rob and steal and thief from God every Sunday morning when you refuse to pay your tithes. Sin is sin. The same disease that causes men and women to murder and kill is the same disease of sin that causes church people to cut down other people with their tongues with poisonous gossip. It's all sin. See, it gets uneasy now, doesn't it? It's real easy if we talk about the sin of ISIS and those wicked people. We can get mad about that. But when you start to talk about your own sin, we start to see that we make excuses for it. We start to see that in many ways we become our own moral gods and we justify why we are unobedient, why we don't obey God, why we don't live the way that God has called us to live. Somehow we can be furious at the beheadings in ISIS, that ISIS have did across seas, and those are wicked, and those are evil, and they should cause us to be furious, but we can get furious about that and not lose a, wee, a wink of sleep over the fact that our sons and daughters are fornicating, they are shacking up, they are living together, they are living in absolute abomination in the sight of God, and we lose no sleep over it. It does not bother us. We have no problem with it. It's just the norm. It's just what we do in this culture. Somehow we can, we can pick and choose what sins infuriate us and what sins we think are not all that big of a deal. We have got to repent. We have got to wake up. We have got to realize that sin is a cancer to the soul. You cannot sin and go on in your sin and not lose. This is why I started with 1 Samuel chapter 3 and we see that the sin of, of, of Eli was that he did not restrain his sons. He knew what was right. He knew what God taught. He knew what the law was. But somehow all of us, me and you alike, 
We all have this, this godless and evil ability within us to justify sin in our own lives, in our own families, while trying to stand against sin over here for everybody else. We do. All of us. I'm just as guilty as many of you are. We have to be willing, though, to look inward and say enough of this nonsense. God is right and I am wrong, and sin is sin, and I must repent of my sin, and I must stand for God, and I must stand for truth. The same sin that breeds prostitution and sex trafficking is the same sin that breeds fornication and sexual immorality. It's interesting that we can be appalled at something worse by someone else but somehow not be appalled at the own sins on our own turf. We lose no sleep when we lie, when we cheat, when we steal, when we rob God, when we... You fill in the lines. Where is the brokenness for sin? Where is the horror of sin in the church? I said this morning in prayer that we've become so self-focused on becoming fat and strong sheep that we have lost the horror of sin and what it's doing to this world. In large ways, we have lost a hunger to win the sinners of this world who need a Savior. The church has lost its message on sin. We don't even know how to deal with sin anymore. So we just try to appeal to people to become better people. Because that sounds good, right? I mean, that's the general message of the church. It's not that you're bad. It's not that you're a sinner. Or, you know, I don't like to use that word. We all make mistakes. So, but, you know, it's not really that you're bad. It's just that God wants you to be even happier and better than you are. And so, well, it's like we're, we don't even know how to address sin anymore. We're afraid to call it what it is. It's evil. It is the cancer of the soul. There are four ways to deal with sin, and I'm done this morning. Very simple. Number one, you can continue in it. That is one way you can deal with sin. You can continue in sin. Just keep on doing it. Now, from the sinner's perspective, there are a lot of people who do that, they hear the message of the gospel, they hear the message of repentance, and they think, well, that's crazy, I don't buy that, I don't believe that, and then they go on their way. But I also see Christians who choose to continue in sin, especially from the modern day, what I will call, hyper-grace movement. Christians who are taught just continue in sin. That's foolishness. Do not continue in sin. I'm not saying that you never will sin, but what I am telling you is, quit it. That's what I'm telling you. Stop it. Don't make conscious decisions to sin. Don't put yourself in situations where you're going to constantly be tempted to sin. Don't go to the bar with your old buddies that you used to get drunk with and sit there and think, well, I just won't drink. Yes, you will. You sit there long enough, you hang out there long enough, and you will. Use your head. Repent. Get away from the things in your life that influence you to sin against God. Are you still going to sin sometimes? Yes. 
But there is a big difference between that and a lifestyle of sin where I continue in sin on purpose. I choose to do it. I have no intentions of quitting. And I'm just saying, well, grace has me covered. Grace doesn't have you covered if that's your life. And I'm not ashamed to say that. This is not an issue of, you know, once saved, always saved, or can you lose your salvation. This is not an issue of that. One of the greatest um, eternal security teachers of modern history was Charles Spurgeon. And Charles Spurgeon said it this way about those who try to continue in sin and yet think they're saved. He said, a grace that is not strong enough to change you is certainly not strong enough to save you either. We cannot continue in sin. We must repent. So one way that you can deal with sin is to continue in it. The second way you can deal with sin is to try to cover it up. That's the way a lot of people deal with sin. They just try to cover it up, right? Just hide it from the pastor. Hide it from the church people. Hide it from the people in your family that you know aren't going to agree. And you kind of just live the double life, right? You show up at church and we talk all churchy and talk about how good God is and we lift hands and praise God and have a good time over here and we just try to cover up the fact that really we're still just living in sin and doing what we want to do when we're not around you. And then we come over here and we take off the religious clothes and we come over here and we live in sin and we're a totally different person when we're not around church people. That's one way you can deal with sin. I'm just being real to you this morning. That's the way a lot of people deal with sin. That is one way to deal with it. It's not a good way. That's a bad way to deal with sin. But it's one way. There are people here under the sound of my voice that that describes your life. Hide it from the pastor. Hide it from your relatives. But you can't cover it up from God. If that is your life, I encourage you to go home today and read Joshua chapter 7. Just one chapter. That's all you've got to read. Joshua chapter 7. And you see how well it works out to try to sin and conceal it from God. You see what happened with Achan. Look what Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 13 says about covering up your sin. He who covers his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. You're not going to prosper if you cover up your sin. You've got to repent of it. That's the only way. You've got to confess it and forsake it. So you can continue in sin. You can choose to cover your sin. And you can choose to compromise your sin. That's the third way you can deal with it. A lot of people live this way. They compromise with sin. They try to tip the scales. You know, if I know over here that, yeah, I've got inappropriate relationships. I'm not really ready to be pure sexually yet. And I'm not really ready to turn away from my drunkenness and this and that. And I'm not really ready to stop my cussing. I'm not really willing to give up these things that I know are sin. So, what I am going to do, at least I'm going to start going to church. That's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to read the Bible some. I'm going to have some churchy friends. I might even attend a, you know, a special study that's going on. And, and so uh, what I'm just really trying to do is tip out the scales here so that when it's all said and done, you know, I'm not a really bad person. I'm not a real religious crazy person either, but like, you know, it's like I'm sort of in the middle. Just like the lukewarm Laodicean church of Revelation chapter 3 that God said makes him want to vomit. 
God said, I want to spew you out of my mouth. You're neither warm nor cold, hot. It's just, you're not cold or hot. You're just like warm. That's what happens when you mix cold water and hot water. It's warm. That's what happens with compromise. Compromise decides where the line is by looking to everyone else. You know, if everyone else is doing it, then it must be right. That's how we determine it. Compromise really comes to its conclusions based upon the consensus. You know, what do you guys think? Everybody is living together these days. This is something we're afraid to talk about in the church. You know why? Because people are doing it in the church. But what do you think? I mean, really, is it wrong? I mean, I know a lot of people that do it, and they're pretty good people. And they say they love God, and they go to church. Don't you know some people that are good people? Huh? Come on. And we all have sin, don't we? So maybe this is, maybe that was just something like for back then. Maybe that was just something that, you know, like they didn't know like what we know now. You think I'm joking. This is the mentality. This is how you come to these conclusions. I sat down with some Methodist pastors sometime in the last six months and talked about them taking on homosexual pastors in their pulpits. That's the argument, brothers and sisters. Well, this, you know, we've advanced a long ways. And some of the things that the Gospel writers wrote, well, they didn't know some of the stuff we know now. And, you know, it's just kind of a general consensus that our culture is going that way. And, uh, you know, Paul talked about becoming all things to all people to reach all people. I've had that one used on me. And so, you know, we believe that as long as the gospel is being taught, that maybe these people that have been rejected, that's the word, they're rejected, that have been rejected for so long, will have a, a way to reach people that you and I won't. You can trust with the same fervor that I've just preached to you. I stared that thing right down the eyes and said, baloney. No. If this is not the Word of God, then let's pack it up. Let's go live. Paul said, eat, drink, and be merry because our lives are nothing. But this is the Word of God. It is the law of God. When God is declared, has been declared from the beginning of ages to the end of time, it does not change. God does not change. If it is sin then, it is sin today. We've got to call it what it is. And here's the thing that I want us to finish with today. We've got to understand that though we're willing to call sin, sin, though we're willing to stare it in the eyes, stare it in the face, call it what it is, tell people it's a deadly cancer that will destroy you, We've got to be willing to say, but there is an answer. There is an answer. God has not left us to our sin. God has not left us to rot and die. God has not left us without hope. There is a way out. There is a Redeemer. There is a Savior. And His name is Jesus Christ. The fourth option you have is to confess it and repent. That's your fourth option. You can continue in it. Secondly, you can cover it. Third, you can compromise with it. Fourth, you can confess it and repent. Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished. He didn't cry out, I am finished. No, He said, it is finished. He had a mission to come, to destroy death, hell, and the grave, to be the rescue for sinners. 
to open the, the, the doors to all mankind to be able to find redemption through the blood of Jesus. And when he cried out, it is finished, he meant exactly what he had to say. It is done. It is accomplished. It is finished. The price is paid. The door is open. The way of salvation has been made complete. We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, Ephesians 1 tells us. Why are not all saved? Very simply, because not all repent. That's why. Jesus said it. If you don't take my word for it, take the words in red. Luke chapter 13 and verse 3. Jesus said it. Repent, lest you perish. Do we have it up there? Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You, that's individual, must repent. You've got to turn from your sins. Finally, as our worship team comes, I've told you what your four options are with sin. But I want to answer the question, what can God do with your sin? If you choose one of the first three, to continue in it, to cover it or to compromise with it, God will have to judge your sin. And judge it, He will. But if you choose to confess and forsake it, if you choose to repent of your sins, the Bible says God will forgive it. Psalm 32, 5. Let's go ahead and look at these passages. I know it's 12.05, but let's look what God can do with sin. Psalm 32.5 I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Here it is. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Rest. Pause. That's what that word means. Think about what was just said. God can forgive your sin. Not only can He forgive you of your sin, He can cleanse you of your sin. Look what Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18 says. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, that's the deepest stain. That color of red is like the scarlet color of blood. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. God can cleanse your sin. Not only can He forgive your sin, not only can He cleanse sin, He can pardon us of sin. Isaiah 55 and verse 7, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and He will have mercy on him and to our God, for He will abundantly pardon He can forgive us. He can cleanse us. He can pardon us. Two more and I'm done. He can remove our sins from us. Look at Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. Thank God He's removed them. I had a lot of them. And I still have sins that I need Him to remove even at this stage in my life. And thank God that He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins if we confess our sins. He can remove them entirely. And then Hebrews 10, 17. Thank God we have a God who forgets about them. He adds their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. 
I think it's amazing God chooses not to remember what I can't. If I want, I could try, wish I didn't remember and I can't make myself quit. I know what I did. I can't forget. Thank God I believe that one day, though I do believe when we're made like He is made, and, and, and there is no more sorrow. I don't know how it's real possible to know everything that you've done, have no sorrow at all. I'm a, I'm a believer that when we get there, God erases that part of our memory and we don't have any, just like Him, we don't see ourselves that way anymore. I'm thankful we have a God that though sin is so serious and though God's Word is as is, is clear as it could be about how evil sin is, so we have a God who's willing to forgive, cleanse, pardon, remove. But then after that, I love it. He's willing to forget it. We're not going to talk about that again. We're not going to talk about what you did 12 years ago, son. I forgave you of that. I forgave you of that. You're forgiven. Thankful we have a God that doesn't hold that over our head all the time, aren't you? That remembers it no more. This morning, what's the application to us? So you showed up to church this morning to hear the Word of God preached. What does this mean to you? Well, if you're here this morning, and the truth is, you continue in sin, or you cover your sin, or you compromise with your sin, the application is plain and simple. Repent and repent now. Repent today. Turn away from your lawless deeds Turn to Jesus Christ. Confess your sins. Acknowledge what they are and then forsake them. Turn from them. Run as far as you can into the arms of God. And you're going to have a moment to do that in just a minute. But what about to the Christian this morning? You want to know how this dealt with my life personally? As I stand before you and as I stand before God with a hand in the air. There is nothing going on in my life right now that I would describe as intentional rebellion against God. Not to say there's never been anything in 14 years. I'm just telling you today, right now as I stand before you. I don't have something I'm like just really battling. I need God to take away from me and some sin that I'm trapped in that, I, that, that God's dealing with me. You better repent of that, son, or it's going to be too late. I don't have any of that going on. But I'll tell you what I do have going on. I think, God, have we lost this message in the church? Do we really have a brokenness over sin? I ask the question in honesty. How is it that we can be outraged at ISIS and not shed a single tear over our own sons and daughters living in fornication and rebellion against God. How is that possible? And do we, do I, does Joplin Emerson, do we, Crossway Church, do we need a renewed horror of sin? Do we need a new, a renewed realization that really... That's what we're supposed to be doing is taking the answer to the sin problem of this world to the people of this world. And we can get so caught up on us 
What's the next thing I can be? What's the next great thing God can do in my life? There's a time and place for that. But I look around this morning... And I've already said some hard things. So why don't I just finish with some hard things? I look around this morning and I see almost no visitors at all. That's what I see. I look around this morning and I see a bunch of people who came for themselves. Am I guilty? Where are the visitors? Where are the sinners who need a Savior? Where are the people that when I preach my heart out on sin and the destruction that it does to people and yet the answer of Jesus, where are they who need to hear it? Have we lost our passion to rescue sinners? And maybe today, as they sing a song of invitation, you don't need to come and ask God to forgive you of a bunch of sin in your life and things you're doing but, but you need a revelation of James chapter 4 and verse 17 that for him that knows to do, God, do good and does it not, for him it is sin. We need to ask ourselves, where is our heart? Does our heart beat with the same heartbeat that Jesus is beat with? Do I wake up today and think, how can I bring somebody to Jesus? How can I help somebody get closer to Jesus? How can I bring somebody to hear the Word of God preached with me next week? And if we aren't thinking those thoughts, if those thoughts are not running through our heads and through our hearts, we have lost something. And that's where I am. I stand and confess my sins to God and confess my sins to you this morning. That's where I am. I pray God restores us a heart of compassion for a lost and dying world.